So from now until the beginning of Advent, Church of the Incarnation, we're going to do this at Church of the Holy Cross, we're circling back, we're going to finish up a series that was started during Easter season on 1 Peter, a series that we're calling Life in Exile. Peter addresses the church, he addresses Christians, he calls us sojourners, he calls us exiles, and Peter is addressing Christians who feel tension with the world around them, who feel tension in relationships with friends and family in the culture because of their faith in Jesus Christ. First Peter, I think, is an especially important and powerful letter for us to be considering in this particular time. It gives us direction on how to live our faith confidently, but also winsomely in a secular, post-Christian age. And Peter, again and again, he is calling the church to live in a subversive way. He calls Christians, especially in the face of opposition, to be radically committed to the good of those around them, to the good of those who would even malign and mock and persecute Christians. And if you suffer for doing good, Peter says in chapter 3, verse 17, if you take heat because of your faith in Jesus, if you suffer for doing good, if you suffer for being a Christian, Peter says it may not feel like it right now, but in the end, you, along with all the saints, will be proven to be on the right side of history. You will share in God's ultimate vindication. It's important to know this. And so Peter is unpacking this for us. He's calling us to live into this faith, the faith which is very, at times, very, very hard. Christians are called to live provocative lives. Provocative lives. Lives that provoke the sorts of questions, the sorts of questions that only the good news of Jesus Christ can answer. And one way, throughout this letter, one way that Peter calls us and is showing us and is telling us how we should live provocatively, is particularly how we engage, how we respond to suffering. There's a great opportunity, Peter sees, in how we deal with suffering to bear witness to Jesus. So we pick up where we left off here in chapter 3, beginning in verse 18. Now, this is a difficult passage. I don't know if you we're listening closely. You probably heard spirits in prison and days of Noah and the ark and baptism now saves you. I mean, what in the world is all this about? <laughs> we should acknowledge this is a hard passage. Uh, Martin Luther was a reformer in the 16th century. And if you know anything about Martin Luther, he was a very confident, sure, certain guy. Once he reached a theological conclusion, he boldly proclaimed that. And he wrote, on much of the Bible in the New Testament, and he said this about this particular passage we're looking at this morning. I quote, This is a strange text, and certainly a more obscure passage than is any other in the New Testament. And the always sure Martin Luther, he goes on to say this, I still do not know for sure what the apostle meant. <laughs> well, we've had several hundred years of biblical and theological reflection since then, a lot of wonderful work's been done in New Testament scholarship, and maybe some of you know the name N.T. Wright. He's going to be here in a couple of weeks. He's one of the leading New Testament scholars of our day, and I was excited to go and say, okay, well, what does N.T. Wright have to say about this passage? And he says this about this passage. This passage remains one of the hardest in all of early Christian literature. <laughs> I want to lower everyone's expectations this morning. 
there are some mysteries here to be sure. But whenever we face difficult passages in Scripture, there's always a very helpful move that we need to instinctively make before we get lost in the weeds or whatever particular trouble we might be encountering. And that is to just zoom out a few frames and look at context to try to get the big idea of what's being said in the passage. And we can actually do that here. And I think it's very helpful to do that. If you look at verse 17 in chapter 3, and then if you look at verse 1 in chapter 4, you notice the theme here. So chapter 3, verse 17, if you suffer for doing good. Chapter 4, verse 1, since Christ suffered in the flesh. So everything in between here, Peter is encouraging Christians who are dealing with suffering. That's what this passage is about. It's about following Christ through suffering. And there's all kinds of different types of suffering that we experience. But Peter here is dealing with a very specific type of suffering. He's saying, this is the sort of suffering that you very well may encounter that comes specifically from following Christ, specifically from what he calls doing good, doing good by following Christ. So I want us to engage this passage, look at this passage under three directions that I think Peter is giving us when it comes to how we respond to this particular type of suffering. One, he calls us to embrace the sufferings of Jesus. He also calls us in the middle of suffering, taking heat, feeling the heat for our faith. He calls us to anticipate Christ's victory. And then lastly, I think Peter would have us in the midst of suffering to remember our baptism. So first, we're called to embrace the sufferings of Christ. Verse 18, Peter gives us here in this verse a very clear explanation of the gospel. Verse 18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Think for a moment about the central symbol for Christianity. For those of us who've grown up in the church, we see a cross, maybe even we wear a cross, and perhaps over time we lose the significance of what that symbol actually is. But at the center of our faith, at the center of Christian faith, is a cross. I mean, think about this. This is a symbol of suffering. This is a symbol of alienation. This is a symbol of punishment. It's a very odd, strange thing that the focal point, at least visibly, of our worship is a cross. The focal point of our faith is a man who died on a cross. And Peter here wants to get this truth before us. And he's coming at us actually in the letter from many angles. But he wants always to have before us this Christ who suffered. This is who we need to remember. When we're faced with suffering, particularly when we start to feel heat with our faith, there's all sorts of ways that we can begin to respond. When you think about, okay, strategically, how do we engage the culture? And how do we navigate difficult relationships with friends and family and neighbors? And uh, how, do we, how do we defend our faith? Peter's talked about that a bit. But the main thing, before we answer any of those questions, Peter says, look, we have to have before us the Christ who suffered. Christ who suffered for doing good. If you're exploring Christianity, if you're considering the claims of Christ, or maybe you're in a place of doubt, you don't know what it is you believe, I think it's important to just point out how unique Christianity is among all other religions, that in our faith, God has become fully human in Jesus Christ and willingly took on all manner of human suffering. 
Now, Christianity never promises to answer all of our questions about why we might suffer, but it gives us a person whom we worship who suffered, and his suffering reached its height in the cross. Peter says, look, we can be distracted by all sorts of things. Focus in on Christ who suffered for you, Christ who suffered for me, Christ who suffered for us. Bring our attention here. He suffered for doing the greatest good. Christianity is realistic about suffering because at the center of our faith is a God who suffered for us. Back in chapter 2, verse 21, Peter says this, For to you, you have been called to this, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Peter makes a simple but I think profound point that we have to sit with. Christians, he's saying, when you suffer, especially for being a Christian, you feel heat, you start to feel the tension for being a Christian, maybe you feel excluded, marginalized, mocked, whatever it may be, you need to know in that moment you are actually following down, following in the tracks that Jesus laid down for you. Jesus knows how to live with the sorts of tensions that our faith can create around us. And he knows how to live with that while loving everyone around him. No one loved humanity more than Jesus. But also, he lived with this tension with those around him, those who would mock him, those who would insult him, those who would misunderstand him, and then again, those who would crucify him. But Jesus' death is not just an example, or just about Jesus identifying with us in our suffering, although it's certainly that. Jesus' death, Peter's saying, is our rescue. Look at the purpose of Christ's suffering. Verse 18, Christ suffered. Why did Christ suffer? Ultimately, that he might bring us to God. We have access to God only through the sufferings, the unique sufferings of Jesus Christ. Only through the cross. And notice what Christ suffered for. He suffered for our sins. Christ suffered for sins, the righteous, the righteous one, for the unrighteous. Christianity tells a story that the brokenness we experience in the world, all the injustice and evil, is a result of a human rebellion against God's good order. And we inherit the effects of this rebellion. We live in a world that experiences them, but also we contribute to it as well. We are co-conspirators in this rebellion. And when we think about sin, um, none of us can live up, if we're being honest, perfectly to the standards we set for our own selves. We, we always fall short of, that, short of that, much less live up to God's standards. But here we have God who has drawn us closer to himself. He has brought us to himself through the work of Christ. Sin results in alienation from God, but Jesus Christ becomes a perfect sacrifice for our sin. He dies for us as a substitute, the righteous for the unrighteous, and in this we are brought to God. We could spend a lot of time considering how all this works, all the different theories of atonement, but I love what C.S. Lewis says about this. The central Christian belief, he says, is that Christ's death has somehow put us right with God and given us a fresh start. We are told that Christ was killed for us, that his death has washed away our sins, and that by dying, he disabled death itself. That is Christianity. At the center of our faith is Christ who suffered for us. Notice he suffered once. This ultimate suffering is complete. It's not repeatable. But Peter tells us if we're prepared, if we're going to be prepared for suffering, then we're to live our lives following Christ who suffered for us. But is Peter in this letter and here just calling us just to somebody just passively 
suffer, just to passively take heat, get walked all over. How are we to understand this? Well, I think we need to remember all throughout this letter, Peter is calling Christians to a subversive way of life, to be a counterculture, not always in retreat, but engaged for the good of those around us. And for Peter, there is nothing more countercultural than suffering for doing good and not responding in the predictable ways of the world. Not responding with insult, not responding with this overly defensive, offended posture, but responding in the way of Jesus. Martin Luther King, in his famous I Have a Dream speech, he addresses those who he says have been battered by the storms of persecution. And he said, quote, You have been veterans of creative suffering. Continue to work with the faith that unearned suffering is redemptive. I love that phrase there, unearned suffering, and the possibility that unearned suffering is finally redemptive. It may not feel that way at the time. It may feel so random and unjust as it is, but there is a possibility that unearned suffering is redemptive. There's a scholar of the civil rights movement and pastor, Micah Edmondson, he said that King's understanding of the creative power of unearned suffering actually goes back to his understanding of the cross of Christ. The power of unearned suffering is the power to bring about redemptive transformation, not only in the sufferer, but also in the person inflicting the suffering. And this is the power that we see in Jesus' suffering on the cross, which Peter says is our example to follow. Not only can it change us and redeem us, but there is a possibility that as we follow in this way, as we suffer for doing good in this way, that even those who might be against us would be transformed as well. Peter says, if you suffer for doing good, this unearned suffering is an opportunity to embrace the sufferings of Christ. This is a very important theme for Peter. He's going to come back to it again later in chapter 4. But also we see here in this passage that Jesus' suffering is victorious. Jesus' suffering is victorious. Look what Peter says at the end of 3.18. So Jesus Christ, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Okay, so what's he talking about here? Well, what he's talking about here is Jesus' crucifixion and his resurrection. This language of being made alive in the spirit refers in other places in scripture to Jesus' bodily resurrection. Jesus lived and died in the spirit of the flesh, but when he was put to death, but he was made alive. He was raised to new life bodily at his resurrection. And Jesus' suffering precedes his victory. And this means hope. Hope for suffering Christians. Now, if you skip down to verse 22, we're going to move past this spirits in prison stuff just for a second. Hang on, we're going to come back to it. If you skip down to Verse 22, Peter, he continues his description of Jesus' journey. He says, Jesus, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers, having been subjected to him. Now, this going to the right hand of God, this is what Christians call the ascension, where Jesus is exalted at the right hand of God, where he rules at the right hand of God, rules victoriously. Now, there's a structure to this passage. Peter actually gives us a map of Jesus' victorious suffering. He shows us the destinations that we're to familiarize ourselves with. There's the cross, there's the tomb, and then there's a throne. There's 
the death of Christ on the cross, his resurrection, and then his ascension where he rules victoriously. This is the victorious journey that Jesus takes. Peter wants us to focus and absorb the work of Christ. Why? Because through his work, through Jesus' work, Jesus is victorious over all evil. What he refers to as the powers and the principalities. Christ suffered for us, but even more, he is victorious for us. Not only are we to identify with Christ and his sufferings, but as Christ has gone ahead of us and secured a great victory, so we in our own sufferings, however small or big it may be, our sufferings are to anticipate the final victory that Jesus has secured for us, knowing that all evil and suffering will not have the last word. So now we can come to this interesting place where Jesus talks, this, this language about Jesus going and proclaiming to the spirits in prison. What is going on here? Having set the framework a bit, I think we can start to get close to some understanding here. Let's just ask a few questions. When does this happen? When does Jesus go and proclaim to the spirits? Um, some have seen in this a sort of harrowing of hell type of event. This is definitely in the Christian tradition. But what's being described here, if we look at the passage, takes place after Christ is made alive in the Spirit. Do you see that? He was put to death in the flesh, made alive in the Spirit, and he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. So this is happening here after Jesus' resurrection. It seems to be connected with his work as the ascended Lord. Now to whom? To whom is Jesus proclaiming this message? It seems during this time that Peter's audience, they were especially familiar with Noah and the story of the flood that we read about in Genesis chapter 6, verses 9. And these spirits in prison probably refer not to humans, but to the demonic forces and angels that are described in Genesis chapter 6, and they were wreaking havoc on earth before the flood, before judgment came and the flood. What is Christ preaching here? What is this message? Well, it's a message of victory. Verse 22 indicates that Jesus is proclaiming this victory. He has secured this victory over all evil powers and angels and principalities. So when you put this together, Christ is made alive in the Spirit. He ascends, is ascending to the throne in heaven, and he is proclaiming victory. Peter is encouraging Christians who will suffer for following Christ. But he's showing us how we should frame our suffering and understand our suffering. He's saying, do not fear. The evil powers that are instigating your suffering, their doom is sure. Because just like Christ announced judgment and victory over the fallen angels of Noah's day, this same Christ is victorious over the present forces of evil now. Their doom is sure. Folks suffering need to know that. They need to experience that truth. Christ is not just the suffering Christ, although he is that. He is the suffering Christ who reigns victoriously. One of our oldest Eucharistic liturgies that we have from the third century, which is part of our tradition in the Anglican Church, there's this language. Hear this. In obedience to your will, the Eucharistic prayer goes, he stretched out his arms upon the cross and offered himself once for all, that by his suffering and death we might be saved. By his resurrection he broke the bonds of death, trampling hell and Satan under his feet. As our great high priest, he ascended to your right hand in glory, that we might come with confidence before your throne of grace. 
It's even in the Eucharistic liturgy. There's this remembering of Jesus' journey, his victorious journey. Here are the destinations that we constantly need to remember. His death, burial, resurrection, and his ascension. Because it's through the suffering journey that he reigns victorious and that we now share in that victory that Jesus has secured for us. I love Martin Luther, his hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Maybe you know the line, And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear. For God hath willed his truth to what? To triumph, to triumph through us. And this only comes through the Christ who suffered and triumphed for us. See, suffering as a Christian, in whatever form it may take, actually, strangely, is an anticipation of the victory that has been secured by Jesus Christ. And Peter wants us to think about suffering in this counterintuitive way. So we have to immerse ourselves in the life of Christ to do that. Because Christ has gone before us. Peter also calls to mind the example of Noah here. This Noah story is operating in the background in Peter. What do you know about Noah? Noah suffered. He was mocked. He was ridiculed. People thought he was crazy. But he was righteous. And in the end, Noah was vindicated. Christ suffered. He was mocked. He was ridiculed. He was pushed to the margins. But you know what? Christ was vindicated. And so it will be with all who suffer in the name of Jesus Christ. You will be proven, to, if you cast your lot with Jesus, regardless of what circumstances may unfold right now, you will be proven in the end to have been on the right side of history because you're on the right side of the cross. The dark powers that have been released in the world, these powers and principalities, as Peter calls them, they have been defeated by the death resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, who now rules. The battles will rage. We know this. It's only for a time because the war has already been won. So like Noah, I think Peter's saying, look, persevere in righteousness. Keep on going. But more than that, focus on the work of Jesus Christ in his victorious suffering, his death, resurrection, and ascension. Live your life in the light of this victorious reality. And there's something unique about suffering in whatever form it may take that has the power to let this truth emerge for us that we wouldn't have been able to experience had we not suffered. But I think also in responding and engaging suffering, Peter would have us to remember our baptism. Embrace Christ's suffering, yes. Anticipate his victory in suffering, but also we're to remember our baptism. Peter has queued up for us, as we've seen, this story of Noah and the flood. And in verse 21, he says, baptism. Baptism, which corresponds to this, or which is the antitype of this event. Baptism now saves you. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but the appeal to God for a good conscience. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There's a prayer in our baptismal uh, liturgy, which brings together this rich imagery of the flood and Noah and the ark. Almighty and everlasting Father, in your great mercy, you saved Noah and his family in the ark, the prayer goes, from the destruction of the flood, prefiguring the sacrament of holy baptism. Look mercifully upon your servant. Wash and sanctify her through your Holy Spirit that she may be delivered from destruction and received into the ark of Christ's church. Baptism is the way for Peter, that Peter's audience entered into the church and were visibly marked out as Christians. And it's the same way for us today. Baptism 
is the antitype, as Peter says, the antitype to the flood. And he gives very strong language to this. Baptism now saves. But he goes on. He says, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but the appeal of a good conscience to God. Now, it's interesting what he's saying here. The word that he uses for filth is an interesting word, and it's used mostly in Scripture to refer to what we might call moral filth or moral impurity. This is the connotation that he has. So what Peter could be saying here is that, look, just because you've been baptized doesn't mean all your moral obligations to live righteously have ceased. In fact, Peter's already encouraged the church back in chapter 2, verse 11. He says, look, abstain from the passions which war against what your flesh. I mean, you got you to keep going. There's a call to perseverance here. There's nothing automatic just because you've been baptized and the fight's over. You're just getting engaged in the fight at baptism. So Christians are to continue, to continue on. This is what baptism says. Yes, we've been baptized. We've been immersed in this faith. We've been plunged into it, as it were. And he says baptism is also an appeal. This word also means pledge. Baptism is a pledge. It's a pledge to God. God is laying claim to us to be sure in baptism, but baptism is also when we are saying this is the path that we are walking, that we will follow. And Peter is reminding the church, look, this is your pledge. Remember that. Your pledge to God. What? For a good conscience. This pledge actually results in a good conscience. To be able to live peaceably, even in the midst of this sort of suffering, to have a good conscience, to come before the Lord with a good conscience. This is the sort of thing that we experience and receive through baptism. And yes, water by itself is not magic in that it saves you, but baptism has its power to save through, he says, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we have this victory that has been secured for us. And baptism is the way we enter into this by being baptized and by believing in Jesus. Whatever questions we might have about the theology of baptism, Aubrey's here all the time to answer all of your questions about baptism. And the spirits in prison, by the way. I didn't really want to get too deep in that because Aubrey has very strong opinions about this, and I didn't want to step on his toes here. No, I'm, I'm kidding. But whatever we think about the theology of baptism, look, Peter's not bringing this up so that we can debate baptism. Peter is bringing this up as an encouragement to the church. This is a, the church who feels pressured and the church who's trying to figure out how do we live our faith well in the world around us. And he says, you got a great resource, your baptism. Remember it. This is what your baptism has done for you. This baptism, I love baptism because it's objective. I don't always feel like a great Christian. Sometimes you may be experiencing doubt. And just completely unsure. Christianity is not based on your feelings. Baptism is this objective marker in history and time that says, no, you are a Christian. God has laid claim to you. Why? Because, because your baptism tells you so. Jesus loves you, uh, Jesus loves you so because your baptism tells you so. It's objective. So you remember that even when you're not feeling like being engaged in this faith. Go back to your baptism because it's a signpost. It's a signpost that you have been saved. And it's a signpost that you will finally be delivered and share in this victory that Christ has secured for you. This is why Martin Luther and so many of the reformers have again and again encouraged Christians, remember your baptism. You who are wearied, you who are in despair, you who are depressed, you who are wearied by sin or by suffering, you need to remember your baptism. This really happened. This is real. 
And this is a wonderful resource that we have, remembering our baptism. The baptismal font is at the entrance of the church because this is how we enter in to this community. We are the baptized body. We are the baptized community. And every Sunday when you come into church, you know, you, you may run into it. You should run into it so that you can remember your baptism, that Christ has laid claim to you, and that because of that now you are to follow in the tracks that he has laid down for your life. We're to remember that we have been rescued from the floods of sin, from the floods of death and despair, and that we have been raised up to new life with Christ, where we share in his rule and his reign. So we should remember, because of our baptism, our commitment, our pledge to live out in this faith, especially, especially in the midst of those situations where we're feeling heat for, for, for believing in Jesus. Our baptism is about Jesus' victory over suffering through his resurrection and the victory that we share with him. Peter is preparing here. We're going to keep seeing this over the next few weeks. He's preparing Christians for the reality of suffering, of feeling on the margins at times for what we believe in Jesus. But he's giving us these amazing resources that will carry us forward. So in a moment, we're going to come to the table, and we do so as God's baptized people, and we embrace at the table the sufferings of Jesus and his body and blood, but we also joyfully anticipate Christ's victory as we shout out the mystery of faith, Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ will come again. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.